0: It's count Disney I guess in the interest of time we'll just uh do it obviously there's a lot of things to talk about on this one
1: yeah well i, I don't think this one needs as much introduction uh and i don't even know if it necessarily needs the tv guide intro but it's essentially mm. alice in wonderland uh, a bored girl daydreams herself into an absolute hallucination uh that takes her through some crazy visuals and then gets spit back out on the other end and continues on with her life at the end
0: okay. I'll just that that's it. that's that's how we start today. We start that before the intro. you just, now you already know the plot. This is the occult <laughs> Disney series here with uh, Matt joining me as usual is Thomas Lawrence, the paranoid American. Good evening morning, whatever it is.
1: Uh, good evening for me. Good morning for you.
0: that's right if uh, if people really if people really care. I don't know I, I yeah, I rarely care what time of day it is when I listen to a podcast. I guess. I mean, for me, I do. For the the people on the podcast, I don't be like. I
1: feel like it's helpful for me to know if the person I'm listening to is awake in the middle of the night versus I don't know, like it, I don't know. It helps to know if the if the person's an absolute night owl and is never even awake during daylight hours. <laughs> that that might make a slight difference on the tone of the, the podcast. The thing
0: yeah it's like uh tomorrow morning i'm actually getting up for a 6 a.m podcast call so the, the fun thing there is like i don't remember anything i said so when i listen to it later it's all new to me
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's pretty early for a podcast yeah
0: yeah well that's the thing you know i'm in japan and, and uk podcasters we have like it's 10 p.m for them that's like as late as they can go right and it's uh 6 a.m for me so once daylight mm. savings time kicks in it's like slightly nicer it's seven o'clock but still yeah um, the most
1: convenient overlap is just extremely inconvenient for both people
0: right it's it's great to have like you know a diverse international selection of guests but <laughs> it's also nice to not wake up at 5 45 but yeah today Alice in Wonderland you've already heard the plot we did that already I guess this is the is the first of the uh Disney films that just really has its a uh, whole life of its own. I mean, we could cut the Disney movie out completely, and there's still like just plenty going on with Alice in Wonderland with the book, other adaptations. Uh, you know, the fact that we use words from it in our everyday vernacular, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, there's a cup There was a couple cool things that came out of this. So apparently, uh, Alice in Wonderland is the third best-selling book after, I guess, uh, the Bible. And uh some other, but oh Shakespeare. Like if okay. you were to add all the works of, of uh Shakespeare in the Bible, I guess Alice in Wonderland comes in third. And then it also comes in something like second after the number of words used from a literary work again after Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So again, like outside of the Disney adaptation, this thing has a lot of staying power. It's had a lot of other movie adaptations that predated the Disney one. And, you know, have come after the Disney ones. So there's no, this, this is one of the few ones where Disney didn't necessarily keep anything going or keep anything alive. They were just kind of like adding their hat onto the pile uh, with a really great uh, adaptation of it, for sure.
0: It's pretty iconic in, the, in that if you do think about Alice in Wonderland, uh, chances are you're, you're going to think about the Alice from this movie. Because yeah, in, in the book illustrations, she's like dark haired, right? <laughs> And then there's you know the whole wild story. There's movies made about the making of the book, right?
1: Yeah, and and originally the the book was drawn by Lewis Carroll, but all of his illustrations were just far too sad and depressing looking. So he had hired someone else to do it, which became somewhat of the like the iconic black and white versions that you're used to seeing the clip art of uh, outside of the Disney renditions.
0: Ah, so they used Carroll's original illustrations for the 2010 movie. <laughs>
1: i mean you joke but honestly one some of the craziest stuff from that movie where i was like why did they add this and and i look it up it was like oh because that was actually what happened in the book so they were it was more true in some cases and obviously less true in others
0: yeah and and with the book i I do kind of feel like looking glass actually has more of the stuff that everyone loves which they put you know disney put a fair amount of it into this movie right with uh yeah, uh, you know, knew- most
1: of the adaptations that we've seen, a lot of the movies and TV shows and everything, they kind of cherry-pick from a lot of the different aspects because I think the original book didn't even have the mad hatter in it, which is a lot of people's favorite character, and that was kind of added uh, for publication reasons right when like the very first kind of written version came out. And then um there was like additional poems that had become out, you know, the Jabberwocky was another one, and it just depends on which adaptation you're watching on how you know how far they they kind of scope through all the breadth of Alice in Wonderland because so I don't think any of them encapsulate every single idea there's just too much stuff going on
0: since we've been doing these films in order though uh you, uh, you mentioned it with Cinderella I noticed a little bit but this one you definitely notice uh like the animation's great but it's it is dumb dumbed down somewhat much from the uh you know high intensity labor intensive stuff from the early 40s and late 30s i mean
1: <laughs> taking some shortcuts they but i also think that they're starting to realize what looked good and where to spend some of their time but there were very obvious places where the artwork was and the animation was way better production quality for example the very ending where they're walking away uh kind of like walking off into the sunset there's a much higher frame rate. It's like almost entirely rotoscoped. It looks, you know, really phenomenal. The shading and like the level of detail as they go off into the distance and almost all of the other aspects. It looks great again, but it's missing some of the shading. It's missing um, some kind of extra in-between frames of animation, I think. But again, for the, the time period, man, I, I get watching it and realizing when this came out in like 54, it would have been phenomenal you know like you would have been comparing it to you know staring at paint dry essentially so <laughs> this would have been amazing i mean if if you're comparing it to like the most modern 3d sort of animations and uh you know it doesn't hold a candle depending on what your preference is but this it's still way more work than you probably are used to seeing in like saturday morning cartoons
0: yeah well the the big standouts the design because your 3d you know computer cgi movie definitely probably doesn't have as good designs as this just like, like you know they put the money into what like the backgrounds and stuff right
1: yeah that map painting which was its own you know still is its own art form slowly dying but it's still around
0: i think i was catching some reuse of the the animatics from the pink elephants at the end with the car it's just something you know working out an eye for this sort of thing now <laughs> Uh, maybe
1: maybe this is where they were they were first starting to figure out how to do their reuse because I think it's going to start being a lot more uh, heavily pronounced in the future movies. We're going to start seeing like almost frame for frame identical movements and rotoscoping, and then just you know changing accessories and faces.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess you got to build up your library before you can start doing that anyway. So <laughs> um,
1: I don't hate it honestly. I I think it's fine. It's if you're watching a movie if the whole entire thing is just you know the exact same movie just everyone has different outfits and a different theme it's one thing but for you know certain scenes and certain little animatics i don't think it's really that big of a problem
0: no it's like an easter egg at some point right (laughs) um
1: so so i wanted to mention too that before uh, we were talking about the book the book actually has some really cool facets of it that i haven't read it in its entirety in a very long time but there was a couple things that that stand out but also i think we would be doing a disservice to the whole episode if we didn't talk about sort of lewis carroll a little bit on his in his own right and how creepy and freaking weird of a dude he was
0: yeah like i said they've had you know like um movies just about that haven't they so um I, yeah, some creepy. And, and I
1: watched a handful, and it's funny because there's still a pretty wide gamut. There's the Lewis Carroll or the Charles Dodge uh, Dodgson apologists, which are the ones that are basically it comes down to oh, well, Victorian era, it was a different time. You know, people, it was different customs and norms. Another one that comes up is that the age of consent was like 12 or something in his area and his time period which doesn't make it less creepy but it's it's still like one of the things that i guess the apologists come out with and then the last one is that there's been no direct proof but after a lot of the different you know little documentaries and bbc articles and everything it does seem that there is overwhelming proof uh like with beyond the shadow of a doubt uh from almost all the experts from like the type of because because for anyone that's not aware lewis carroll despite the fact of being the author of Alice in Wonderland and most people linking him to that, he was also a prolific photographer. He was a mathematician that came up with all sorts of like little math and logic, uh, sort of like theorems that still exist. But in his photography, which he also took pictures of, you know, like nobility and celebrities and like, a, you know, popular people of the time. But I think over 60% of his catalog was like children, nude children. And, uh, they did a whole bunch of um, like analysis on things that they had found out, like many years after he had died, and like absolutely prove him that the type of photography techniques used, the camera used, the paper used, uh, the development techniques, everything matched up to some of the photos that he took. That even at the time, considering all of the custom norms and everything for the time period, were still way outside the realm of acceptable. And there was a a direct riff because he wrote Alice in Wonderland named after a girl named Alice Little and she had a few other sisters. She was essentially the daughter of the dean of the college that he worked at as a math professor. And um, according to Alice Little's mom, the mom said that at a certain point, Lewis Carroll just became, you know, quote, too affectionate towards his daughter and they just severed all relations with him. And I think that he didn't come around for like a few years. And then when he did, it was you know a whole different dynamic essentially and he was never a- allowed to be around any of the kids alone again so there was some undocumented that's the thing that's like unproven is that there's this undocumented thing that happened that caused this huge schism between him and the family of alice that he based this whole book around
0: yeah i mean it's i mean even the not even victorian era right the bbc you mentioned the bbc and that's that's got its own you know sorted underbelly of course so it's not like this is a new thing
1: <laughs> not at all and and it's it's a it's weird just because there's a lot of different levels that you can read into the original book and then the, the later adaptations one of the more interesting like some of the boring ones are that alice kind of represents colonialism because she goes into a foreign land And she's constantly trying to put her own cultural norms and values on these, you know, complete strangers. And that just causes nonstop problems with her. Another one that it's it's Lewis Carroll's interpretation of what a young girl going through puberty would be like, because she never feels comfortable in her own clothes. She's either too big or she's too small and she's constantly changing and can't make up her mind and kind of just like nonstop illogical decisions this was what he kind of perceived like this you know budding female mind to to maybe represent going through this time which is another weird aspect of it and then there's another i guess the most obvious one is that this was all about um taking drugs and sort of hallucinations and altered states of consciousness especially when you talk about his playing around with logic and words uh that one's kind of a little bit more overt and i think also a little bit more solidified by jefferson airplane i think without that particular <laughs> song it might not have has had the uh the strong implications of oh yeah if you see alice in wonderland like lsd's involved
0: yeah yeah of course it what just been synthesized several years before and was not on the market i don't know maybe it was on the market by now but obviously it wouldn't have affected the book you'd need some air god or something for that um <laughs> I, I was, yeah, I was thinking with the with Puberty Edge, and, and this is uh, just in, I don't remember if this is in the book or not, but when she's at her largest size, you know, insisting that she's just a little girl, that, that certainly hits that button pretty hard.
1: It's, and I think it's an interesting take. I had never heard that one before, and it makes sense. Uh, and then there's another, this was an avenue that came from... Like, I, I want to say, like a, I'm not going to divide everyone into apologists and non-apologists, but essentially the people that seem to apologize the most for Carol uh, also tended to be the ones that suggested he might have been a Rosicrucian or a Freemason. And um, most of the articles and references I found there were actually Rosicrucians and Freemasons trying to claim this popular, you know, timeless author as one of their own. As like, hey, look at one of these guys that's in our cool club. Um, so they also happen to be apologists of like, oh no, it was normal for the time, you know. Um, but but there was a very interesting line here that a lot of his his writings dealt with Rosicrucian um, sort of mentality. Like one of the ones that seemed a little bit vague, but when she gets really big, she can't see the golden key, or she's ignoring the golden key because her ego, like it, the size of it, relates to her ego. So when the ego is so big. You can't see important information or you're just ignorant of important information because your ego is taken over. And when she shrinks down, this is like the death of the ego. Now, the only thing she can focus on is that golden key that's up above her because it's like so big and it's, you know, it's like her focal point. And each time like she forgets when she gets too small, you know, when she's big enough to pick it up, she's ignorant of it. So she takes the pill and she shrinks down. Um, so that was an interesting aspect of it because of the use of like that golden key and also the painting of the roses towards the end with the Rosicrucians. and the the Freemason link was less direct. I was hoping to find more juicy dirt on this <laughs> one, but the the only Freemason link was just some speculation that after Lewis Carroll died, I think like two-thirds of his personal Diaries just disappeared and were never recovered. And apparently, that is very common for Freemasons that you know, the brothers, the lodge would go in and kind of take away your diaries, but there's a long list of other reasons, uh, based on some of the other stuff we just talked about, which people might have wanted to get rid of some of his older stuff, or maybe he did, you know, maybe he had like a dead man switch. It's like, Hey, (laughs) Hey, Hey buddy, man, if you know, if I die, like go and get rid of all my, my weird porn or something. Um, so there might've been some kind of an, uh, an agreement like that where it wiped out all of his diaries. But (laughs) anyway, I I found all that really interesting.
0: Yeah, we thought we knew the inappropriate photos, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, imagine the ones that never surfaced, right? Because the <laughs> cause the one that I think is the biggest smoking gun was actually found at a art gallery in France. So it's it's not like any of it was like hidden or found behind, you know, like a like a uh, an old false wall. Like these were in art galleries.
0: I it's like to throw out when we have these um horrible things coming out. I I'm were you um familiar with Leonard Nimoy's photographic career
1: no (laughs) this is wild
0: apparently from the 70s to about the time he died he was into doing nudes of very large women I'm like cool (laughs)
1: like an R. Crumb style
0: oh i i don't think it was no i think he was trying to go glam he just that, that he yeah. he liked large women some people do It's great so that Good one him, I'm like, okay. yeah i yeah. know
2: about that that's cool <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's certainly yeah yeah certainly certainly better than the the carol approach in that case um the other music one of course yeah the jefferson airplane white rabbit but i feel like the uh at least the flow of the language is more like a john lennon thing you know with with i'm the walrus and uh Strawberry Fields forever kind of having a bit of a carol Carol snap to the words, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean the the walrus, you know, Cuckoo and everything. I always thought that was interesting. Although the uh even on re-watching it and and rereading some of the original, that the walrus story that Tweedledum and Tweedledee tell is such a weird, like it feels it feels like it didn't need to be included in the movie. It's such a weird, like out of left field. Thing. and I've really struggled with trying to find um, sort of the interpretations for it. I mean, I found a, a handful that were interesting to it, but that specific tale about the walrus and the carpenter and the oysters was just such a an, a weird diversion in that movie. I'm curious to hear your take on it.
0: I, I think I've maybe stumbled over one of the um, interpretations you've got where it's kind of like this weird capitalist thing with the walrus sort of being the uh, industrialist and, you know, throwing just trying to pull the wool over his customer's eyes that sort of thing
1: well one of the interesting ones that i found too was that the walrus is peter and that the carpenter is jesus for obvious reasons and that <laughs> The oysters were the disciples um although once when i once i started reading into like okay why is it peter and jesus It it breaks down a little bit it's more just like because there's a carpenter because there was 12 oysters i think in the original book um, but again, it's like I understand the parable, right? I understand the message that they're telling, and it was essentially I, I kind of, without trying to look into it, I sort of interpret it as that, that capitalist sort of issue of, you know, here's the worker and he's getting taken advantage of by the capitalist and the oysters are essentially, you know, the the worst part of the deal like they just get eaten um right but I mean, I mean again like why was that in uh Alice in Wonderland why was out of all of the things that Disney could have selected to animate why is that something that gets so much screen time oh because, I, I your, don't
0: know I heard your question the wrong way so I'll, I'll first answer the right way where maybe because it's an existing book this this movie does gel more it's, it's not kind of marking time as much as me like we mentioned a few of the other ones kind of like stitching things together because it's a new medium basically but um like I do know that the the Walrus and the Carpenter tends to be taken out of this movie a lot and shown in other places. Didn't Pixar even like move borrowed the sun and moon from it for a short a few years back, I think.
1: I, I'm not familiar with that one if they did. Yeah, not I think they
0: it. I think I think they took that day and night imagery and did like a whole other like short out of it. So um the the other one I was thinking of is I, I kind of buy into the capitalist interpretation because there were so many um children's books that were obsessed with economics around this time period, right? You got, you know, the time machine has sort of the whole like socialist metaphor thing going on and The Wizard of Oz, if you read on book form is is very economic thinking.
1: Uh, It's a fair point, although out of all of the companies at the time to be putting out anything pro-capitalist, I would think Disney would be the one putting out that message. So it was either Maybe it's, it was just like a different of the times where even you could kind of have this sort of perspective and still be like an ultra capitalist, like I guess Disney was, um, or maybe it was the uh, matter of the writers and the animators kind of having more direction because, you know, he was being pulled in a million other uh, projects at the time too. So I don't know. Uh, and and I, I agree that this thing could be kind of taken out of Alice and just watched on its own and st- stand you know stand up on its own two feet and kind of you know like the characters established everything none of it really comes back into the book or the movie that I'm aware of uh, I'm really like I'm so fascinated like why why did they go on this tangent not just Lewis Carroll but why did Disney go off this on this tangent
0: yeah well I mean again the the books do it like over and over it's not I mean there's again Tweedledee and Tweedledum are just an episode in there right I mean I guess there's an episode in here it's it's still a pretty you know modular sort of story you could like reorder some of the stuff and, in this. and it their only purpose
1: in the cartoon is essentially to tell the story so if you got rid of this story then you really don't have any reason for Tweedledee and Tweedledum to exist either
0: but, and again they're not they're not actually in the first book so yeah so just a I, I guess you can reshuffle both uh, books to a certain extent, <laughs> which is what they're doing. I was thinking, the, the, uh, watching it last night, the only place where I definitely will go, oh, 2010 is better, is, um, yeah, yeah, Alan Rickman's the only person who should be doing the, cal- the Caterpillar's voice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. I'm, I might disagree with you a little bit on that one. Yeah, sure. I think... <laughs> I I love his voice, and I love... Because I think he did multiple voices in that movie. It wasn't just the Caterpillar. But the the Caterpillar... I, I actually made a couple... I have a note right here that is the Caterpillar kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that it was my favorite character in the cartoon. But in the 2010 movie, it was just kind of not that interesting.
0: Okay, I'll give what what he does is a lot better in this one. I just was like... It's, I was like superimposing Alan Rickman's voice uh, when I was watching it last night I was, like, I like that better. <laughs> I feel like the caterpillar needs to have that like, um, not Um I'm thinking of all the lower class words, plebeian, not that um, patrician disdain. There we go. Well,
1: <laughs> like and because the... some of the the notes that I because I watched the cartoon and then I watched the movie and I mentioned I also watched some of like the foreign. Um, kind of like more abstract movies, but I'm not gonna get into to those ones. The 2010 movie, it was, uh, you know, I was wondering like, why is it so gloomy and dark? Because I really, I feel like I preferred that lighter, cartoony 1954's optimistic version of everything. Um, because it was, you know, like a, this childlike wonder into this crazy world. Whereas the movie is like, you know, if you watch it in the time period 2010, it's just like that that angsty teen just you know came out of college and is just like everything is uh is about like criticizing the rest of the world right like everything sucks and society sucks and and uh everything is just a critique on something and it kind of follows that but also you realize it's directed by tim burton on top of this Mm -hmm. so it already has like this gloomy sort of uh depressing look to it but um, I I found myself wishing that had more of the tongue in cheek sort of uh, optimism of like Edward Scissorhands, you know, like some of like the really like punchy poppy sort of stuff where like the people that are optimistic are like over the top and doing it amongst all this crazy stuff going on. Whereas this one, it was a little bit more on the nose of like everyone knows that the whole world is kind of miserable and they're making their best to get through it. And I, I don't know, it felt like a weird dynamic that the movie could have been better without that. But I mean, you know, I'm freaking so, sitting here talking on a podcast about it, not a movie director, <laughs> but it it really did feel like it was just a little bit too much burden.
0: Yeah, well also keep in mind the 2010 one makes that weird conceit of being like, Oh, we're a sequel. Like technically that's a sequel to this animated film, right? And it felt it's really tacked Alice, on like ten years later. When-
1: and everyone remembers her, but she doesn't remember it, except she remembers that she had a dream that was like this. But even though she's reliving the dream like beat for beat, she never puts it together that mm-hmm. like, oh, this is the same thing. It's, it's such a weird because uh, I think for the first half of that movie, everyone's like, you're Alice. And she's like, no, I'm not Alice. And then she starts convincing other people that she's not the same Alice. And it it felt like it was just kind of tacked on, like and I and I remember a few times looking down at the uh, the time, because I think the the Disney cartoon one was about like a minute or um an hour and ten minutes or something like that runtime, and I think the movie was a, like a half hour longer than that. And man, they you could have easily taken that half hour back out. And I, I went on a whole rabbit hole of like when did movies become longer, and and apparently it was like right at that cusp of like the 30s and 40s. It was a little bit normal to have a a shorter movie. And then as time went on, it gets closer and closer to that two-hour mark and then starts weaning back over.
0: Yeah, the late 50s, early 60s certainly beat people over the head, you know, because you got stuff like Ben-Hur, Spartacus, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, and which are like just movies that last forever. Um, And then I, I think the thing now is that there's kind of like, push and pull at the theaters uh, in 2022 I don't know if it's still the case because people stream but you know it's like well a two and a half hour prestige film, you can only show it like four times a day whereas the you know uh, if we want to get into 30 links, it's a 70 minute movie you can have like three more showings and make that much more money so yeah um, I think, maybe uh, the uh, fact it, that I people mean- are watching it I'm just saying, you're well, at home. You want bang for your buck, so it's like, oh, I'm gonna rent that two and a half hour movie. It feels like I'm getting more.
1: Well, that, that director's cut with all of the extra stuff that nobody wanted to see, and now you get to see it and pay a little bit extra for it.
0: Yeah, and but, um, but
1: yeah, that that rabbit hole was interesting because it did really come down to like an agreement between the movie producers' associations and the the theater owners of like, hey, let's just kind of aim for about 90 minutes. It's it's a nice kind of medium ground of. People feel like they got their value out of it, but also you can keep them churning and getting, you know, more butts in the seats.
0: I think that's a, yeah, that 90 seems like a pretty perfect length. I mean, you know, and and when I'm, when it's the night before I got to do a podcast, I'm like, hey, an hour 10, that's great, right? <laughs> so.
1: Honestly, I'm, I'm sold on like the hour and 10 minute format. I want to actually start looking for movies that are specifically a little bit less than 90 minutes because I do feel like there's like a perfect, length in there for the for the right type of movie for that like you know that big epic um you know coming of age adventure i think you might need that two hour two hour movie
0: oh yeah if if you're you know gonna get into like old school sci-fi pot boilers and westerns you know like that you that's the perfect length and it's all on youtube So I, I say I do the sci-fi podcast, and, and the one I was actually rendering uh, when we started the call is we were like, my co-host was like, find something mad from the 50s. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so it's uh, one of our more random choices there, but um, no shortage. There is this. Sure. I I do want to get you know, of course, I do want to f- make the focus to the 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 an- the animated one, but um, there is a sequel to the, the Looking Glass sequel to the 2010, which I only saw once. I saw. 2010 movie many times because my daughter really liked it when she was three for some reason uh, we saw the Looking Glass once which is way more colorful but it's just like completely incoherent like I can't even remember what like the semblance of a story was supposed to be for that
1: really was was this also Johnny Duck?
0: Yeah, different director, I think. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it's like this is it, it's like a memory hold movie almost, right? I had No I, I idea.
1: Even, it, exa- even when no, I was looking I, up all the movies, it didn't come up. I'll have to look deeper.
0: Maybe because the title is not Alice in Wonderland. Um, I'm, I'm actually bringing up the little info on this because I feel like it actually made money and then oh, just yeah, was 20, completely forgotten about. Yeah, maybe just like nobody could reiterate the story sorry i only type looking glass and i'm getting a band okay (laughs) 2016 yeah there there
1: were so many weird little facets of the 2010 so i i I think i actually took more notes in 2010 just because it was so much weirder than the cartoon version maybe just because the cartoon version is sort of the baseline uh you know like even the weirdest aspects of that movie the, the disney cartoon didn't seem that abstract. Like if you compared it to Fantasia, you compared it to Dumbo, um, it was well animated, but it wasn't so abstract where there was any particular scene was like, man, this is blowing my mind, like the dancing elephants or something, you know, or like the sound waves coming together. Um, I think they I were going the Elvis- for
0: that with the uh, breakdown of reality at the end. Like I said, I think they reused with the animatics from the Yeah, Elvis, like the right. door's
1: floating and and like it starts out she like almost jumps into like water, but then the water becomes completely transparent and it turns into like a red fog and then the fogs sort of like bouncing around in this big ethereal abstract, you know, like universe, and then she goes back through the door and she's back in reality again. Although, like, I don't think any of it really like knocked my socks off the same way that some of those scenes from Dumbo and Fantasia really did.
0: That that is that is true. Well, the 2016 movie, it had a budget of 170 million, which is pretty insane (laughs) even now, and it made 300 million or almost 300 million. I'm like, and nobody remembers it exists. That's a, that's a, amazing, but yeah, I saw it the one time. I'm looking at the plot here, and I'm like, I don't remember even seeing this. <laughs> uh, I kind of do. Oh, yeah, it was just sad. It was, it, apparently mean, it was
1: I, Alan Rickman's last movie too.
0: Oh, out. Okay, uh, but yeah, it's, it's not Burton. That that was probably. I mean, I, I did I say this on a podcast. I had this ridiculous dream a few months ago, and one part of it was. I think I did say on a podcast, but not this one. But uh yeah, part of the dream was me like helping a really falling over drunk Tim Burton across the um across the town square. And then he vomits on my shirt, and I'm trying to figure out how to get uh Tim Burton's vomit off my shirt. And my my friend when I'm telling him that dream is like, Oh, well, that was just your subconscious critiquing the last 10 years of his film career. I'm like, I don't think my subconscious is that snitty a film critic, but hey, you could be right. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why I had that dream, but <laughs> it's, a, but hey, it's, it's, it's uh, adjacent to Wonderland. If you notice a, an ongoing
1: series of directors vomiting on you, then you might be onto something.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it keeps happening. Yeah, okay, um, but yeah, that's kind of his pivot point, I think, where we just kind of gave up on Tim Burton for the most part. Uh, maybe. So, so, th- are you talking
1: know. about the 2010 movie was sort of your pivot point?
0: Yeah, cause he he done the chocolate factory, not as good as the one with Gene Wilder, I I would say, but you know, not bad, I guess. But then that's honestly, I, the, I I, honestly, I, I it think anymore. it's
1: almost sacrilege to even mention the uh, the Tim Burton remake uh, or Johnny Depp and Gene <laughs> Wilder's version in the same sentence, man.
0: I, I I can kind of get that. Um, I just will say the one thing I I do really like in the the Burton remake is that is the um the malfunctioning singing animatronics that all catch on fire.
1: Oh it had had a lot of great merit man. I loved (laughs) it. I just kind of I don't know. And also in this one too, and I kind of love Johnny Depp, but man, I did not like him as the Mad Hatter in this movie. And I didn't like him as Charlie. But I think I think the Charlie one is a little bit unfair just because Gene Wilder couldn't get any better like you couldn't have cast a better oh no um, or get a nope. better performance out of anyone so like no one's ever going to beat that particular and since he's the main focus of that movie even if he's not the protagonist like that movie you know and gene wilder inseparable whereas charlie and the chocolate factory i wish they could have just like put gene wilder in that like just cg him in and CG Johnny Depp back out, and it might actually be a really good movie again, I like
0: Rogue, Rogue One style. Well, the the <laughs> other crime for that one was um, neutering the boat ride, which is one of the best pieces of film ever in the Wilder one, and they just kind of like gloss over in the new one. So, <laughs> I, I guess giant Depp can get creepy, but maybe not that creepy. I don't. I don't know. At least on not on screen. I don't know. <laughs> um, let's let's. I don't know. Maybe bit by bit a bit more on the 50s one um let, let's look at the magic uh in this one is it is it i guess rosicrucian is not really magic stuff where, where are we getting the magic no, no, absolutely. Uh, golden yeah. so, dawn golden keys so,
1: so so rosicrucianism kind of predates a lot of the more modern ones and rosicrucianism was sort of an amalgamation of all the different mystical and occult practices from many different kind of cultures and paganism and stuff and like all moshed together. Um, it was it really was like the the junk drawer slash grab bag of just like everything you could imagine. Um, sort of like Hellenistic thought merged with a little bit more modern interpretations of it. So Rosicrucianism was like anything occult that you could think of, although it was also relegated to sort of like the rich and fancy people, which happened to be Lewis Carroll's kind of running class, specifically being at Oxford and everything. And and I believe he um the the school that he taught at, Christchurch, that's actually where the Harry Potter um, big, like, famous scene where they go and, like, they sit down and they eat in the big cafeteria. That's mm-hmm. Christchurch. So that's the place where Lewis Carroll was actually teaching. So, you know, like, the, that whole realm of, like, Harry Potter, Victorian-esque, you know, like, magical architecture and everything, like, that was his legit real life. You know what I mean? Like, he was living in the Harry Potter cafeteria as he's coming up with these ideas and stuff. Um, And then the Rosicrucian link, aside from just the sort of the clans that he ran in and the fact that he was in the right type of, you know, class of society and knew the right people to have been in that, there's not enough record on that. However, another really cool aspect of this is that Alice in Wonderland is essentially a story about a girl that goes underground. The original title was Alice, Alice Goes Underground or something. And uh, and there's a story of Persephone, which is a story about a girl that goes underground in Hades. And Persephone is um, sometimes represented by a white rabbit, or you know, the the story kind of em- embodies sort of rabbits in within it. And this tie between this white rabbit of Alice in Wonderland, Persephone. And the fact that Lewis Carroll was also a practical magician, not, you know, like not like Rosicrucian style magician, but he also like legitimately just liked doing sleight of hand tricks um, and and pulling white rabbits out of hats mm-hmm. sort of was like the going. It, that wasn't like a novelty at that point, like people kind of knew about the, the rabbits and hats. So those three kind of links together, you've got practical stage magic, you've got actual like Rosicrucianism, occultism style magic kind of tied into this white rabbit symbolism and i think that even if he wasn't a rosicrucian he probably would have known about some of those aspects of it as he as he kind of created it
0: do you know i'm actually having a, a bit of a look at the um lewis karawiki i'm, I'm just saying, I, I was thinking about the golden dawn i was i guess he that was a little after his time
1: yeah golden dawn started with um mathers
0: like, yeah about 1890 i guess so yeah i guess i guess lewis carroll would have been a little little maybe old to get into that one yeah Ro- so. Rosicrucianism that, that just
1: started and then and then the golden dawn was sort of like um the con not i'm not gonna say the common man because you still had to be in like a certain class to even have the leisure time to pursue these like <laughs> loftier ideas right but the golden dawn kind of brought it a little bit more structure but also a little bit more approachable for more people outside of kind of like the higher echelon of golden because when you talk about gold um not golden dawn rosicrucianism i mean you're literally talking about like the top professors at oxford style schools again lewis carroll and like his dean and sort of his uh his peer group but not a lot of people outside of you know if you couldn't have like the the kevin bacon um more like less than six degrees you'd almost have to be like two or three degrees away from some kind of regal or you know nobility in order to get into rosicrucianism
0: yeah just just here i just uh was accidentally read another crowley biography
1: actually oops you <laughs> <laughs> just kind of oops, slipped yeah, the bell- no, it was- it's 600 a, pages <laughs>
0: that's actually exactly what happened because um <laughs> it's it's the one that the pretenders first bass player re- wrote I, I think his name's gary lockman or something but um yeah i got i got the book and i, I thought it was going to be like crowley's influence on pop culture and stuff which um i, I mean that was the last chapter but all in all it's just another crowley biography but oh well i actually <laughs> so i got one I behind
1: have, me too like a 800 pager it's called uh crowley in america and it's just about the years that he came and i didn't even realize that he had come to america so i'm, I'm excited to read that but
0: oh yeah people thinking he was a, a double agent or whatever one, one of the pr- problems i'll put that in quotations but I, I do most of my reading on my uh tablet now my, my ipad so i often don't know how long the book's I'm reading. Art. I've had a few times when I actually had an author on a podcast. and was like, "Hold up your book for me. I want to see how thick it actually is," because <laughs> I read it on a tablet, right?
1: Yeah, like, kill my someone books. with
0: that book. <laughs> yeah, you kill somebody with that. So, I, I think that's fun for the author. Anyway, it's like I, I did bother to read your book. I probably even bought it, but uh, yeah, I just. Want to see how thick it is.
1: And <laughs> sometimes it just it, uh, um, it sucks when you're trying to cite a specific page because your page is different than everyone else's page depending on your font size and everything else.
0: Right. Um as far as Alice in Wonderland, though that is one where um I think it's downstairs now or there's just one randomly around, you know, just in the house and occasionally I pick it up and read a few pages and I I've been doing that for years. I haven't like actually just read the book for a while. But I might actually open and just go to straight to the Wal- Walrus and the carpenter, right? Maybe maybe that's why uh some of these things are there because it, it is a it's not like most novels where you really do need to start it, work your way. You can kind of just like plonk anywhere into uh, both of the books. So
1: that's a fair point. And there's also a lot of places in the book that you can read it without even caring about the uh the storytelling or the adventure and the protagonist and it's literally just about like logic puzzles and just magical thinking and interesting ways of uh new perspectives and kind of like changing the way that your mind almost works Uh, which i I hope we'll get into a little bit the mk ultra cia oh yeah sure
0: (laughs) the um the flow of the words i think I mean, again, if he's a a mathematician and a magician, he's probably thinking about how that you know he's casting a spell by writing, yeah. So (laughs) literally, he's spelling the words.
1: And some of the lines that are present in the in the both movies and that are cited very often, like the Jabberwocky, and a lot of the instances of like a cacophony. So you know, the the concept of cacophony is it's just a bunch of words that you put together, or it's syllables within a word. That don't sound like they should go together, and it's almost like an assault on your eardrums. Um, like it's almost the not the exact opposite, but like alliterations. Like alliterations are are so nice to hear, you know. Best Buy and TikTok and like things that kind of like roll off the tongue. Like a cacophony is the exact opposite of something that would roll off the tongue, and a lot of that semantics and a lot of the the grammar that comes out of like the Jabberwocky tale. Um, This is like intentionally written to just be cacophony after cacophony so that like every single line, it really it sounds like someone's like attacking you with just like harsh words over and over again. And that evokes the feeling that it's meant to evoke, which I think is not just being masterful of language, but I think there was probably some level of, you know, um, that that genius aspect of like this guy's a, a crazy, you know, ultra Horrible villain because uh, like in his free time, he's doing very inappropriate things. But then like in his other free time, he's writing crazy, you know, math formulas and translating essentially math and logic into stories in ways that I don't think anyone's still been able to do the same way, which is why these stories are so timeless. It's, it's kind of like despite the author, they are, you know, they have like a staying power.
0: Yeah, sometimes when you hear about how, I mean, there, there's a certain line of horrible worries you don't want to even think about, but in general, I'm like, oh, this person's a horrible prick. It comes down to why I don't have to deal with him in my kitchen, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think I'm going to have to deal with, you know, William Shatner, like trying to play practical jokes on me in real life so I can just enjoy Star Trek, you know. <laughs> Which,
1: and it uh, helps, too, if, if the dirt doesn't get dug up for, like, over a century after your works have been sort of, you know, assimilated into multiple cultures. Because I think in addition to the Bible and Shakespeare, Alice in Wonderland is one of the first books to have been translated into so many different languages and um, sold so many different copies so quickly.
0: Yeah, that, that's why I kind of jumped towards, you know, Shatner for my um celebrity that seems unpleasant because it sounds like he's just a prick and then laughs at you so <laughs> not quite as bad as a spacey although i do find a great conversation starter is what is your favorite kevin spacey movie so <laughs> um oh alliteration wise i'm just going to shout out because I, th- I was giggling about yesterday i was talking with friends about like you write a fantastic book and then just give it like the worst character names ever so uh gold standard for there which is a little carol jason was um what was it oh tuck fard yeah my lead character's name (laughs) yeah (laughs) just wrong in like multiple ways so i like that um yeah my ear let's let's change course a little bit my ears perked up when we were going to go cia and mk ultra and of course i've heard that kind of tied in with this film before and all that um although (laughs) is this a little early to be too direct with that? I mean, it's 1950. I, I guess we are CIA. We're not OSS anymore, but I feel like the tendrils would have been tentative at this point.
1: You're cor- you are correct. Um, I do think that it's it might be, for the Disney cartoon movie, it might have been a little bit early to have a direct CIA-MK Ultra-specific correlation, although the, again, like As you kind of already mentioned, without the Disney cartoon, this still has the same amount of staying power. It still is like the number three best-selling book of all time. It still has the most amount of um, English words that we use from like this little like a literary source. I think outside of Shakespeare, I think another one, ironically, is has to do with John D. I think John D. also contributed like the most amount of frequently used English words to the language. John D. being the the Queen's Magician, essentially the original 07. But anyways, I, I think that it's a little bit too early for the Disney movie and MK Ultra to be directly related, but it's definitely not too early for this, you know, CIA MK Ultra mind control sort of tactics to be based on the original Alice in Wonderland and the original concepts of taking this mathematical logic and bringing it into essentially interrogation techniques. And there's some concrete evidence of this one. So this one is one that's actually a little bit more fun to explore because there was um, a CIA interrogation manual called Kubark. And I think Kubark itself was some sort of cryptic uh, anagram that translates back into CIA somehow. And Kubark was released sometime in like 2006, I believe. They, they actually published it online. You can find the original copies, but it was originally released in July of 19... 19- 63 so about uh, 10 years after the cartoon came out and i don't know if the interrogation techniques were based on the movie i assume it was still based on the book but of course with the movie being popular it would have been impossible to not uh, separate the two but within this so if, if you look this up if you find page 76 of the kubark counterintelligence interrogation manual and the, the subtext is essentially it's a torture guide tells you how to, how to torture somebody. And which is interesting because on the very first pages, as the the Kubark manual opens up, it explicitly says like, this is not to be used um, in any sort of coercion. You're not supposed to imply any sort of um, like pain's going to be inflicted on someone. You're not supposed to imply that they're going to be under any kind of physical harm. But then as you actually read the techniques, it's like, Oh, and like, you do this for like a month or something, you know, and they're talking about like sleep deprivation and and keeping you from eating and like, like things that would obviously be considered torture, I think, especially mm-hmm. for months on end. But at the very beginning, it's like, oh, but none of this should be under coercion. And they cite because of previous operations that had been compromised. Uh, but anyways, page 76, there's an interrogation tactic that they call the Alice in Wonderland tactic, um, also known as the confusion technique. And what it basically does is it uses the absolute absence of logic on the person that you're interrogating. So some of the examples that they give, and I'm going to paraphrase and and throw some of these out there, but if you're being sort of um, argumentative within uh, interrogation, you're not being helpful, sometimes they'll reward you when you're not helpful. And then when you are helpful, they'll cold you out or they'll yell at you. So if they're like asking you questions and you're like, you know, screw off coppers whatever, it'll be like, hey, you want to smoke? You know, they'll start being nice to you. And the second you actually cooperate and give them the information they're looking for, they act like you're lying to them and they do it intentionally. And they also start doing weird stuff like um, they'll feed you your breakfast and then 10 minutes later, they'll feed you lunch. And then 10 hours later, they'll feed you dinner. And then 10 minutes later after that, they'll feed you breakfast again. And it just like makes no sense. And it's, it's intentionally meant to completely throw you off, they, they mentioned changing the clocks. So, if they leave, you know, if they, they have you leave an interrogation room, they'll set the clock back four hours and put you back in there and make you think that you're crazy for thinking that you lost time or that the time was off. It's just nonstop gaslighting and it goes on for hours, days, weeks, months, however long it basically needs to take. And the summary is that this causes anyone, any rational person. Um, struggles to maintain some kind of structure and sense no matter you know how crazy you think you are um, or like how creative or how mentally stable if you're subjected to this kind of just nonstop absence of logic for weeks or months on end especially when it's authority figures you're in a, a controlled environment where they're controlling your sleep patterns your food intake just everything like every part of you is being controlled And then you add in this extra level of like, you can't have any sort of structure to base your life around. It just says like reality for this person just starts to disintegrate to the point where they'll just tell you everything on their mind constantly, not because they're, they're now trying to get out of it, but because they're trying to now make sense of Mm -hmm. the world and just reality itself and, and reading how like far and all the, like the specific techniques that they get into um was just it was like mind-blowing and it was kind of cool that they called this the alice in in wonderland tactic because again it's it was almost a reference to how alice in wonderland and and the logic puzzles that lewis carroll sort of injected into it and it feels like lewis carroll again might have been onto something here where he found like a secret cheat code you know like the freaking the blood code the konami code for <laughs> uh for like you reality know, the human... yeah dude like i mean not like reality itself but the the human perception of it he found that konami code to like get you know into the uh the admin menu almost <laughs>
0: yeah yeah i mean you know our perception of time is that that test takes forever and uh I know sometimes I I do a meditation at lunchtime and sometimes there's been a few times like oh crap it's five hours later I miss like three hours of work I'm like oh no it timed out exactly what we're supposed to so it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just sitting here thinking of I mean I like to play mind games on people not not particularly you know like nefarious ones but uh, <laughs> uh yeah one of my worst nonsense moments was I don't know why when I was in university I just decided to do a Buster and Keaton impression for like an hour when hanging out with my girlfriend but i didn't tell her i was doing that so she (laughs) she didn't like that
1: (laughs) i mean the the, the whole trick is just how long you can hold on to it and not break character essentially
0: we were playing squash uh uh, you know the 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 university gym so i just had to run around hitting the ball with a stone face right But another,
1: uh, was um, I was going to say another weird tangent that I went down on this and, I, and I'm still not sure if I'm right but there was a certain scene in the 2010 movie that I could have sworn I saw um, the queen and the the white queen has like this gaggle of other princesses or something that are like hanging out with her and one of those was the chick from Westworld um, Rachel Wood something I can't remember her full name Um, and I think at the time she was the girlfriend of Marilyn Manson Mm -hmm. and Marilyn Manson was actually putting together a Alice in Wonderland slash Lewis Carroll movie slash documentary at this exact time so and she was going to be in it so there was actually a crossover between Disney's Alice in Wonderland and Marilyn Manson's Alice in Wonderland sharing one of the same actresses but she I think uh, Evan Rachel Wood, I think she ended up being uncredited in the 2010 movie. And I, it was a rabbit hole that I wasn't willing to spend much more time on, but it felt like a cool, another extra tangent because I didn't even realize Marilyn Manson had been working on a, a Lewis Carroll slash Alice in Wonderland movie.
0: That That is interesting. And maybe that has to do a little bit with the use of this and kind of um, since 1950 and sort of like espionage or mind trickery or all that stuff, because Partly because of that movie, but yeah, there does seem to be like a weird goth overlay that's just been thrown on it with 2010 solidifying that. But even before, you've got got the
1: Victorian uh, era. So that's like it. Victorian anything attracts goths like freaking moths (laughs) to a flame. Right. (laughs) Then you've got a lots of like blood um, imagery, uh, even in the cartoon, a lot of off with the head and the red paint sort of representing the red blood dripping down like you don't wouldn't necessarily see a lot of off with their head and blood imagery in a modern disney movie and then also in the original book and in the 2010 uh remake there's a scene where they take out the bandersnatch's eye with like a little sword they literally rip it out of his head so like there is a lot of sort of like i I think out of the tim burton uh adaptation and the cartoon tim burton feels like it might have been a little bit more accurate towards what Lewis Carroll actually had in his mind as he was like writing the stuff out and drawing it out because again his original artwork didn't make the cut for a publication because it was too depressing and sort of like somber looking and creepy I think was the uh, between the lines there
0: yeah now I'm kind of sitting here thinking about how this um like I think between book movie and all of it I obviously it's it's programmed all of our minds like a little bit because I don't remember the first time I saw this you know um I uh, or came across the story or whatever I, and I probably came across in like little bits and pieces and before I even saw the whole thing uh you know again maybe just seeing the the walrus and the carpenter out of context somewhere as a you know three-year-old or something
1: I mean if, if you were to ask someone to name you know a few children's books off the top of their head this one's gonna be in most people's list right off the bat just because again it's I didn't I didn't realize how freaking popular it was. When when you're competing with the Bible, you're pretty freaking big, you know what I mean?
0: No, you, you've used the term rabbit hole multiple times and yeah. and today <laughs> I'm confused what what you mean by that. I'm like does he lean the one in this movie or just the term in general <laughs> So yeah um oh yeah yeah and and with words that we use I was just wondering how high Orwell's on that list cuz that's that's usually the first per- person I think of for like you know the book that has words we use in normal normal speak now right
1: <laughs> Uh maybe although I think he's a little bit more on the nose like like his A lot of like the double think and double speak and um, sort of the the terms that he came up with, I think, are used in very specific contexts, whereas Alice in Wonderland and rabbit hole stuff and through looking glass and just and just I think specific quotes from the book itself are just more applicable in general, you know, situations versus Orwell. You're already in a very specific niche Mm. of conversation when you bring up double think and, and stuff like that.
0: That that's true, yeah. Double plus so, good, no, you
1: know.
0: Well, again, the the I guess Alice is so ambiguous that you don't even notice anymore, right? Like, uh, if, if someone was super nuts, they could go back through his podcast, see how many times we said "rabbit hole" and see how many times it was used use as a euphemism, or how many times we were literally talking about it. I think it's more euphemism in this case. <laughs>
1: I mean, off with their heads essentially was an Alice in Wonderland thing, and most of the the uses of off with their heads is a, um, you know, derives from the Alice in Wonderland's version of it. Yeah,
0: you know, pointless rage, right? You know, curiouser and curiouser uh, regularly shows up here and there. So, and, and, and yeah, yeah, following your white rabbit, chasing the dragon, chasing the dragon's on this, but following the and, white rabbit is, of course.
1: And the, another, I think one of my favorite quotes from this one is the whole, like, um, I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Probably my favorite quote of the book slash movies, but also such a great representation of that magical thinking. Because ima- imagine like a Victorian era typical person is not thinking of six impossible things before breakfast. It's essentially like, you know, thinking like a child and exploring, having just like crazy creative daydreamy sort of um absence of logic you know thoughts and to force yourself to do that constantly puts you into this magical thinking mode man there's so many cool little elements of that like even in the uh in the book and i think in in the 2010 movie when she's about to go into wonderland and she's um the dad's telling her as she's like a little girl still if you ever go back into that wonderland here's a way that you can tell if you're dreaming and he like pinches her or something. That's essentially explaining how you do lucid dreaming or even like NLP, which would be like an anchor, like this kinesthetic anchor, which you can tell. And, And in doing lucid dreaming techniques, one of those techniques is doing these reality checks. And one of the reality checks is pinching yourself. Usually it's, you know, somewhere on your hand or something. But you know that if you do it often enough in reality, you understand what it feels like. So then when you go to do it in a dream and you pinch yourself, if it doesn't feel exactly like you're used to, in reality, then that pinch lets you know that you're currently in a dream state and that you can then like start to take either control over it and get into a lucid dream or snap out of it, which is what they're kind of telling Alice to do. But I mean, this seems like such an innocuous little thing like, oh, it's the dad telling the daughter, you know, pinch yourself in your dream. We've all heard that before. But within the context of traveling through different mental states and uh, magical thinking, I think it takes on a lot different contexts and it's a little bit more important about that anchoring of like, here's how you can control these lucid dreams you're about to go on.
0: Yeah. I, I would, um, I guess I would promote the jump method there. Just when you think about it, take a little jump. And if you start floating or flying, it's a dream. And, uh, it, it worked once cause I was sure it wasn't a dream and I was like, Oh crap, I'm floating. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, that's it, what those reality checks working. are
1: all for, man. That's a hundred percent what they're there for is, you do something that it would just be so, like, you know what the outcome is, and it's such a boring, predictable outcome, so then when it doesn't have that boring, predictable outcome, it's obvious that, that you're now in a dream state.
0: The other thing, and um I guess there's a lot of things with the, the white rabbits obsessiveness, obsessiveness about being late. There's um, all the animals, uh, the birds and such in their, their weird ritual circle dance thing or whatever, but um I was thinking about In dreams, um, but more so in that, like, waking twilight, I I think a lot of us do this. I don't know if it's a weird thing for me or not, but just getting your brain locked into weird, repetitive tasks that don't make any sense. (laughs) Like, you know, I need to move my leg up my other leg and then back down to achieve this goal, and the goal doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I I just feel like that's kind of something that might apply to this movie. And, And thinking of some of the... Wonderland Diazen's weird obsessiveness.
1: Well, and and it's not just that this Wonderland has no logic; it's that the logic just doesn't coalesce with the logic in the waking world. Like, and I, I think like the the unbirthday is kind of a cool concept because it's like every, it's unless it's your birthday, it's going to be your unbirthday, and everyone celebrates your unbirthday, which would literally be every single day except for one day of the year. Um, but it's like, it's such a common occurrence and it doesn't make any sense for you to celebrate that. That one, I think is the most easy to understand because it doesn't, it doesn't take any like real abstract thinking. It's any child has understood the concept of opposite day before. Um, and that's sort of what like the unbirthday is like this opposite day and thinking, but man, that's like the, uh, the, the gateway drug into Lewis Carroll's like absolute, uh, again, I guess not absence of logic, but like the inversion of logic.
0: Well, I I just use the unbirthday yesterday. You know, I teach kids five-year kids turn in six the next day, so that the front manager is like, "Oh, we need to sing Happy Birthday." So we do that. And then one of the other kids is about to start crying because it's not their <laughs> birthday. So I so I brought out the unbirthday. That's awesome. know, go a five-year-old. That's that's pure magic. You know?
1: <laughs> did, did you do that specifically because you had watched uh, Alice in Wonderland recently?
0: Um, I would have done it anyway. I mean, yeah. I was in the middle of the movie, but. But I would have, yeah. I didn't need to watch the movie again to to use that particular tool. I think I've. It's well, not the first time I've had to play that card. So.
1: <laughs> well, well, next time if you want to uh, to use it, another real world scenario. Maybe you can figure out a way to use that Alice in Wonderland interrogation tactics on your uh, on your kids.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I probably have already, but <laughs> <laughs> not not quite to the extremes you were describing, of course. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. I, I know what like one magic Well, one when I this is where the kids line for magic is. And maybe that's worth considering with Alice and she is relatively young. I, I think she's a little older in the movie than in the book, if I'm correct. Is Big time. Team?
1: Actually, in the book, she's supposed to be nine, um, And I think the girl at the time was about 10 or 11 years old. But in the book, she's between seven and nine. And in the movie, she they state that she's 19 because she's about to turn 20 um so she's like well out of you know school and everything she's been just kind of moping around uh the house for at least four or five years but that's the 2010
0: movie movie though right
1: the 2010 movie yeah she's 19 19. 19 okay Okay. so we can assume she's probably about seven um but i think that in the cartoon she's a little bit more lucid than a seven-year-old she's probably closer to about 12 if you had to put a number on it
0: that's what i was thinking but um but especially the seven-year-old would perceive magic very differently. Because getting back with with the kids, if I pull out a deck of cards and just do a shuffle, you know, they think that's magic.
1: And then if I do the
0: <laughs> if I do the one card magic trick, I actually know, you know, I'm, I just shattered their mind. So, <laughs> like, they'll start looking through the cards, you know, like, oh, give me those. Even for the shuffle, they they think shuffling is magic, right? So. <laughs> Probably. What, they can't what's,
1: do the, it. what's the Arthur C. Clark quote? that that uh any uh sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So I mean to a to a seven-year-old, you know, almost everything is sufficiently advanced technology, right?
0: Yet they can work a iPhone with no trouble.
1: <laughs> uh maybe. I don't know, man. Some some of the recent reports are starting to look like they can use it. As long as the apps are working the way that they expect, and then the second something goes wrong, uh, you know, like this, the same sort of technical ignorance starts to set in. Like, I think it'll be interesting because I think everyone assumed that this whole digital native thing just kind of automatically happened. Like, if you just put your kid to sleep with his head on an iPad through osmosis, they'll understand, you know, how the operating system works at a deep level. But it turns out that that might not actually be the case. And now you see kids. With like a printed book swiping the page, expecting it to turn. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have not seen that one quite yet. Yeah, like with my daughter, it's kind of like we threaded this weird needle where she didn't really. I, I Maybe Japan's like a little bit. See, people think of Japan as like being super high tech, which there is a certain degree of that. But we also like still use fax machines and, uh, you know, government offices are just now being like gee maybe we should stop using paper you know <laughs> so there is weird ways like japan's quite backwards as well um i, I mean you especially for Enko, which is kind of like old school you know in like 50s 60s the kill bill music that sort of thing um you can still find cassette tape stores because there's a bunch of old fogies that are still playing them <laughs> like new I mean, cassette, honestly, tapes.
1: cassette tapes are making a big comeback i don't know if you knew that or not
0: I knew they were for punk rock and experimental electronic music, but...
1: <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's across the, the board now, man.
0: Okay, that's cool. But yeah, yeah, I mean, they never went away in Japan if you were going to go listen to all, all this this Enko music, so... <laughs> but... I
1: think, too, I mean, th- this... I'm probably a little bit ignorant uh, speaking out of turn here, but I also think that, like, compared to uh, the U.S. or even Europe, Japan gets to live in a slightly smaller bubble where there's, uh, like maybe like the having to to send a paper document from one office building to the other office building within business districts in Japan might actually still be somewhat efficient compared to having to send something from New York, California or something.
0: Yeah, that's part of it. But also um, just changing a policy is really annoying. That's why things change so slowly in Japan. So you know, if we're still doing it the way we did in the '80s, whatever, it's too annoying to change. It would <laughs> blow know? my
1: mind if I saw someone legitimately using a fax machine in a in like a modern company. I mean, I've, I guess I've seen. It oh,
0: before. I can, I can, I could probably find some. Uh, <laughs> uh, just yesterday, now this wasn't a copier, but yeah, I I had to take one out because I copied some stuff out for a class, and on the top was a fax, so I had to put back for the uh, front. Excuse me, front folks. So yeah, yeah, it is weird, but yeah the the point being you know, uh 2010 is when m- my daughter was a toddler and uh I think the most we gave her was this really lame cookie monster game on Nintendo DS, but she didn't really start playing with you know phones and pads till she was eh, at least six, which I guess isn't really the case anymore
1: oh i'm I'm actually glad you brought up uh games here too because um I didn't I didn't have any great notes on this, but man, Alice, um or sorry. Uh, American McGee's Alice video game. Have you ever played it or heard of it before?
0: I I have heard of it. Yeah, I I think it was something that I was. What year did that come out? It's not
1: oh, particularly it new, must is it? Have been, no, no, it must have been the early 2000s.
0: Yeah, I was in uh, the late 90s, but I do remember hearing about it. But uh, if if you want I to rip I on that, a bit, I think I played maybe the first much. quarter
1: of it or so because it was. I didn't have a great computer time when it came out, but honestly, I I almost feel like that had a better storyline and visuals than 2010 movie. And if anything, I might try to go back and like replay that old American McGee's Alice um, and just pretend like that might have been another movie that was part of canon.
0: Um, One other thing we definitely have to discuss with this movie, though, is uh, Alice's substance abuse, keeping, keeping mushrooms in both her pockets, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah, of course, eat me, drink me, there's a lot well, of that. <laughs>
1: but there's a good point here that that uh she was, she seems very experienced with it, because even as she comes up to that table for the first time, she kind of like says to herself and out loud, like, you know, some people, um, paraphrasing, like some people go overboard, but if you know how much or how little to take, then you can kind of control it. So like, she sounds like a very well seasoned, it's like, you know, it's like the person like, oh, yeah, you're. You want a heroic dose? We're going to get you to like 4.3 dry grams of some Mexicana, psilocybin. Like she knows exactly what she's doing throughout a lot of this process, I think. Uh, like she's a very well-versed traveler. And she also doesn't lose her shit quite the way that you would expect someone to uh, going through all this, which I think is a, is one of those interesting aspects between the cartoon and the later movie. Because as a seven-year-old, or even, even as a 12-year-old, Sort of like this changing and fluctuation of reality and nonsensical things feel like they would be more easily accepted than this 19 year old going through the same stuff because that would, it really feels like you would be losing your mind at that point and starting to like deteriorate mentally versus being able to kind of roll with the punches and and keep like a fluid mentality.
0: Yeah, 12 year old Alice. I mean, she gets flustered for sure, but generally takes it all in stride. Where, where like you said, in 2010, she's spending half the movie trying to convince everyone she's not who they think she is or that she's someone else and all that. Where here, she kind of in the 1950 version, and I guess the book, she rolls with the punches, you know, for the most part.
1: Well, that's kind of the cool part about her, I think, is that she's rolls with the punches and keeps going on this adventure. Whereas, like the 2010 version, I swear, just. It feels like that whole entire movie takes place at a funeral or something.
0: I, I actually is one thing because uh, we were, we when we did Cinderella, I was just like, yeah, I don't like Cinderella. She's you know, well my email title was Cinderella's a bit of a ditz, right? Where Alice is perfectly fine, you know. I like Alice, I mean, <laughs> bro.
1: Alice is cool as hell.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and even the twenty ten versions are reasonably cool, right? I mean <laughs> she feels a little a hot bit, topic, she but... feels
1: a little bit mopey. She feels yeah. like she'd kind of be a drag to be around. The 2010 version Like, like a I drag said, to be around. Like
0: I, Yeah, well, she, she shops at Hot Topic. And, well, let's face <laughs> it, I hung around those girls when I was 18, 19. So <laughs> a few of them, at least. So, yeah, but it's still someone that's not unlike Wilbur's. I didn't see, uh, as I said, I did not see the live-action Cinderella. So I don't know if they managed to give her a character in there, but I have my doubts. <laughs> But uh yeah Alice is always a character. Basically, I mean if you give someone just such mad situations they have to deal with, they have to have some character. You don't have anything happening.
1: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. They would just they would just like uh zone out, I guess.
0: You're waiting for your prince to come. There's not much going on there.
1: <laughs> That's a good point too here and at least the the cartoon version there's really no aspect of that at all. Like she's not chasing after a prince or a love interest because again, seven to 12 year old girl uh, doesn't really fit into that same element of like the princess and the prince and trying to figure out what to do with the life whereas the movie that's almost exactly what the movie's about it's about her getting married and hating you know rich people and privilege even though she herself is like the epitome of rich people and privilege because unlike Cinderella like she wasn't doing any kind of manual labor her only job was to essentially just like look cute in a dress (laughs) you know what i mean and curtsy
0: and and the second live action movie i think begins with her like you know with taking her own ship to china or something okay that there's some privilege there (laughs) i mean there's there's nothing
1: quite as victorian as smuggling opium from china either right yeah oh yeah how you how you kept that uh, legacy going
0: it goes in no no in opium goes in money comes out I don't know how it worked I forgot (laughs) there were were a few wars there Um,
1: I mean if you start looking into the original funding of almost every higher education institution you find opium smuggling at the the other side of it
0: it's always weird when Alice tells the flowers she's a um, certain species and doesn't get it anywhere near correct you think I don't know? I feel like it, by that point I at least knew, you know, like the whole Homo erectus and all that sort of stuff, right?
1: <laughs> I think it was just a uh, a bad joke in the movie. Yeah,
0: yeah. Something I did notice I recently watched uh, the film Annihilation, and I, I definitely was like thinking. Yeah, these flowers are real similar to the weird, like people flowers in Annihilation. I don't know if you saw that movie. The idea, kind of a one, well, a disturbing Wonderland where all the DNA of everything is kind of being mixed together. But
1: uh, it's not really getting any bells. I'm I'm almost positive I've seen it, but it, it went into that same black hole as the 2016 yeah yeah Alice
0: uh, that, movie. That's a uh, Natalie Portman where there's this big weird alien bubble thing on on. Uh, on a lighthouse and they go into explore and time and space breaks down it is kind of like a horror movie Alice in Wonderland when you think about it so or at least in concept it is
1: <laughs> yeah honestly it's it's hard to not come up with any movie that goes into one of these weird abstract places and not draw a correlation to Alice in Wonderland because again Alice in Wonderland is sort of like one of those underlying archetypes that kind of set the mold for everything that came afterwards
0: mm. Oh, this is, this is. I don't, I'm not actually trying to go anywhere on the political fence with this note, but I just, Uh-oh. once we show up at the Queen's castle, I was like, I assume this is how Mar-a-Lago runs.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, oh,
1: uh, this, uh, this isn't related to, to Mar-a-Lago. This is another interesting note that one of the reviews I was reading mentioned that all of Wonderland was actually a memory palace, uh, which is one of my favorite topics ever. I don't know how much I agree with it specifically but i do i do think that there is enough there to uh to sort of like debate whether or not wonderland as a whole could represent a memory palace
0: yeah that's kind of cool it, yeah it just doesn't correspond well with her memories i guess unless she just plays in the grass with bugs a lot then i guess maybe it does <laughs> <laughs> maybe she does if you can
1: really tell the difference between one patch of grass and the other then i guess it is
0: well i guess that would make the the Sorry, it's not the Red Queen, it's the Queen of Hearts. And you, see, you, you mix them up, right? Um, so the Queen of Hearts palace, I mean, that could be just her own home and, you know, aristocratic sort of Victorian rules and things in place.
1: Well, yeah, actually, that's a, another good point, because in the the book, more so than either of the movies, but the, the Red Queen or the Queen of Hearts, she actually is the most logical of anyone else in the entire story. Uh, she's the one that doesn't deviate from logic she's the one that even in the cartoon calls out the cards because they're trying to change reality of these white roses they planted and they're trying to paint them red um she again is like the actual judge and jury of reality saying like no you're not allowed to change reality cut off your heads um because she is so focused on logic and reason and not deviating from that whereas everyone else the entire you know wonderland is the opposite of that. Although I don't, that doesn't really hold up the same way in the live action movies. Cause then in, in the live action movie, it's a lot more magical.
0: Right. And and then you got Helen, Helena Bonham Carter, just playing her, you know, completely mad off her duff. Right. So <laughs> who,
1: who is a, a, a Rothschild? We have to mention that if we're talking about conspiracies, <laughs> uh, Helena Bonham uh, Carter is absolutely a, a blood uh, related Rothschild. So.
0: But you do have to wonder what kind of blood you have, you know? I like, I'm like, I, I, I'm, I, you know, my, um, oh, what is, what is my grandmother's family? They got a family, Crest house. I'm like, oh, that's got some, that's got some weird. I, I remember there's a TV show where they replaced Rothschild with Rittenhouse as, as sort of like the, uh, the, shadow bads and i was like hey that's that's, <laughs> that's 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 my family name
1: they didn't they didn't want to trigger any of any of the uh the jdl or adl sort of letters so they were like we're gonna choose the written house
0: yeah yeah but then i was like yeah so but that does make me think like hey who's in my past um i know like my dad's side of the family used to have a fair amount of money around uh Del Marva and there's a lake, Lake Commages, but apparently I'm like, so what happened? And uh, someone blew it at the horse track. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a good story. And yeah, you are like, hey, there's a lake named after a family. Why isn't it? Why, you know, what happened? <laughs> so yeah, who knows what, you know, seven generations forward and back are supposed to matter, right? So who knows what happened? <laughs> yep,
1: statistically speaking, you're either related to uh, Genghis Khan or you're related to King of uh, like of King Edward V or something, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> have you ever, this is especially true in Japan, a lot of children have kind of a, um, not quite a birthmark, but like a, on their lower back, there's a big, it looks like a bruise. Do you have any clue what I'm talking about?
1: I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: Okay, because there's been issues actually when people like went to America or whatever and someone's like, oh, you're abusing your child, there's a bruise, but it's actually this, kind of it it's like shows up at birth and it tends to go away after a few years but the uh the old wives tale is that means you're a you're a descendant of genghis khan
1: <laughs> i never heard that it's interesting as oh man
0: but yeah yeah that is something if you ever see like a japanese and maybe i maybe other east asian um uh folks sometimes if if you do see them at the pool you'll be like oh my god are they abusing their kid or something cuz it looks like a bruise but it's actually normal <laughs>
1: No, that's the, just that's just the Genghis
0: Khan. <laughs> exactly the the other one that uh, you see a lot in Japan. That uh, I guess the way they give childhood shots, they have this one weird like nine pin thing. So you'll see kids that even adults that still have the scar from that. So that's pretty wild. Just having a permanent scar on your arm from that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there's things you don't really see till you till you get here. Uh, is there any other big? Points you want to throw out on Allison?
1: Uh, I don't think so, man. I think we covered like the Lewis, a lot of the cool loose Carroll Rosicrucianism, and maybe that he was a Mason, although maybe not. Uh, really, the that that MK Ultra and Kubark counterintelligence interrogation guide was <laughs> one of the, the cooler things that I came up with because it's one of those things that you hear very often, oh MK Ultra and CIA and Alice in Wonderland, but here it actually is right from the CIA, uh, like, n- not even uh, denied anymore. As of 2006, you know, you can submit your own FOIA request and get this document, but you also have to go through that effort. You can just find someone else that's already done it and read it and just see, like, they absolutely took inspiration from Lewis Carroll's work in logic and trends, you know, basically, like, compiling logic into grammar. And then as you read that grammar, your brain turns it back into logic and it like does the same weird logic shit to your brain that like reading the math equations would do you know like the math equation would jumble your brain in a way that would be like well this doesn't work because the the logic and somehow turning that into grammar i really truly honestly believe that deep down he he unlocked something that the cia then has been able to sort of you know other intelligence agencies and secret societies and rosicrucians and stuff but they've taken that work or maybe maybe some of what lewis carroll put into that work that made it so timeless came from these rosicrucian teachings which might be similar things that are now used by intelligence agencies but i absolutely believe that between his use of um grammar and rhetoric and you know that the whole cacophony um aspect of it and this introduction of logic, there's there's something so deep and timeless with this story that it's almost impossible to put your your finger on specifically. But it's the reason why it's going to last another hundred years plus, I think.
0: No, I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, obviously it uh, like it informs CIA logic, but how much did it create, you know, modern thought like before that? I mean, you look at the like, animation, well, for adults to stay, it's all like ridiculous, absurdist humor, you know, memes are just usually ridiculous absurdist humor and i'm like before alice in wonderland that, that i can't think i mean all i can think is like jonathan swift or something you know
1: no there Honestly, <laughs> there was man um there there's uh some really cool um creations around this time period there's one called Thorpa, and i'm probably mispronouncing that it's essentially aphrodite spelled backwards and it is incredibly surreal there's like a land of mushrooms and weird aliens with like no eyeballs and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think this came from, uh, it, it came after Alice in Wonderland was written, but it came be- way before the movies. It was like late eighteen hundreds or early nineteen hundreds or something. Um, so yeah. there was there was a a long stint of this like weird abstract stuff and like weird stories that didn't have as much sense. Again, like the Alice in Wonderland stands out the most because there's there's something deeper there there's like this freaking formula that's baked into the grammar that i don't think exists in any of these other sort of absurdist novels
0: yeah i guess the one to my mind that would come closest is is the is the, the flatland book which uh you know also kind of mathematical thinking there uh what,
1: isn't that like 70s though or, or does it predate that
0: i, I take a look I, I feel like there is a victorian era book that oh, uh, yeah 1884
1: hits- OK, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that to me, that I guess after Alice, that's why I would think of. But it is around this time, I guess, maybe because people had a little more time on their hands, even in sort, some of the lower rungs of society. Right. You don't need to farm like every day anymore. Uh, you still have to work in the factory six days a week at this point. So that sucks. But this is a start a modern thought. We have a little more time to stew on stuff. And when you do that, it gets wacky. Have
1: you ever heard of the book called uh, Raywan? which is Nowhere spelt backwards.
0: No. Oh, uh, I don't, you said this that, hasn't I was like come maybe. up
1: before yet, yeah, I'm surprised because it's like one of my favorite books to bring up. But this is 1872, um, and it was written by a guy named Butler. And sort of like how The Carpenter and the Walrus is this sort of like self-contained story in the middle of a bigger story inside of Ray which is about this guy that finds like a secret utopian society where they've outlawed getting sick so that like no one in society is a criminal, no one's ever sick because the second you do anything wrong or the second you get sick or you hurt yourself, you're basically thrown in jail. So they maintain this absolutely perfect society, but within this whole story, which in itself is like an interesting sort of tale, there's this thing called the 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 law of machines or the book of laws of machines or something and it essentially lays out rules for artificial intelligence and um like robotics and how to design robots so that they can't um sort of like work against humans. And again, for something being written in 1872, it's some, one of these really weird, cool, like prophetic sci fi novels that's worth checking out.
0: Yeah, actually, maybe you have mentioned it before, and that's why I recognize the name. But uh uh just one more absurdist book before we uh this is 1930, but uh have you come across a Gatsby? Not great Gatsby, but Gatsby.
1: It's, I don't think it's, so. No,
0: it's, it's not a great book, but the um, weird thing about it is the book does not contain the letter E. So, <laughs> okay. and it's like a 150 page novel that does not contain the letter E, which is just kind of wild. So, <laughs> I mean, you just read a little bit, but like, how does he work his way around that, you know? <laughs> so, uh, just but very much in Wonderland thinking, I'm going to write a book and it's not going to have E in it. So,
1: so they just put like the number three in place of all the E's and call it a day.
0: No, I, I think they stay. I think he stays pretty <laughs> legit about it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't believe it cheats because you just find other ways to say it, you know, and the, the language becomes very weird and unreadable, of course. But you have to be impressed that he pulled it off. You so. know,
1: I, I would say, too, not a, a book that would be as easy to read as Alice in Wonderland. But um, I think James Joyce had ulysses
0: yeah i knew is, you were about to say that or finnegan's wake i like reading that there you go sometimes
1: <laughs> so uh, uh, more really great examples of just like an absolute mastery and domination of grammar and language and used in a way that it's almost again like secret cheat codes that are like doing things to your brain that you don't realize just by reading it and making the sounds um they kind of like they awaken something weird uh inside you and i think that's Lewis Carroll and, and maybe James Joyce are probably the two ones that come up until you start getting into like weird niche NLP sort of like, you know, reference books.
0: Well, you gotta get blackout drunk and watch Finnegan watch read Finnegan's wake, right? That's how it's like when you lose yeah, your own. Like that's a
1: wild, a wild night there, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we gotta get in his mindset. <laughs> Do it. Um, I guess we'll wrap up today. So uh th- this is actually you can Tell us what's going on right now because I'm gonna put this up within like two or three days so what's what's up in your oh
1: uh well the biggest thing is that we finally got in print um little under a thousand copies of the chosen One comic book which is with uh, uh a comic book that I'm publishing through paranoid American paranoidamerican.com and it features the Adventures of Juan from the one-on-one podcast and a few other podcasters and they just kind of like go through flat earth and they find tartaria and they go out into outer space on the saturn and they um fight these like huge gnostic mech voltron style monsters it's kind of like a wild tale and uh it's kind of cool because we've got it placed in a bunch of head shops and sort of off the the beaten path sort of retailers all along the west coast i think a lot of them are in portland um and like surrounding areas in california and then we're going to get them placed somewhere on the East Coast. Um, but that that'll be available. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, you'll be able to find links to that on the Paranoid American Etsy store, but also on the one-on-one podcast.com website.
0: Of course, do seek it out, but I feel like the the absolute best experience for that would probably be like stumbling on it and just not knowing what it was. <laughs>
1: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Which,
0: unfortunately, if you're listening to this, you're already past that point. But uh, (laughs) I I can imagine that would just be fantastic. As for this, uh, we're doing a Disney, a call to call Disney. Uh, I, I guess we're still affiliated on the Oral Hygiene Podcast. So you can contact us around Oral Hygiene Pod on Facebook or Twitter and we have a bunch of podcasts under the Patreon umbrella of Podcastio Podcastius where you also talk about sci-fi films The Twilight Zone Pokemon and Monster Hunter although I don't really talk about the last two because I don't know anything about them okay let's go find another rabbit hole to trip on down into <laughs>